Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into everything you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and I'm very pleased to say I'm joined by a regular and very influential media influencer, Mr. Duncan Castles, who's gone all festive in this, of course, Christmas week. Um, unfortunately, as this is a podcast, you can't see the fact that he's not wearing the traditional red and white Santa hat. In fact, it's tangerine and black. And those, of course, who know him, as you all do, that is because of his allegiance to the legendary Dundee United. Duncan, welcome with your Santa hat. Merry Christmas to everyone. Indeed, indeed. Today, uh, we'll be doing a mix of news and your questions answered. Uh, we'll be talking about Chelsea, Manchester United, Tottenham Hotspur, if you like, the beginning of the festive season. Uh, not hero and villain, but Santa and Grinch. However, we start at Stamford Bridge and it's our understanding that uh, there are some issues regarding um, the overload of attacking midfielders uh, in Chelsea's squad. I think we all realise and know that they spent heavily, obviously, in the summer and indeed last January, um, if you count Christian Pulisic uh, on Kai Havertz, Timo Werner. Um, and obviously they invested also in a new contract for Callum Hudson-Odoi, who was attracting interest from Bayern Munich. It's our information that Frank Lampard is becoming slightly frustrated by the size and the imbalance of his squad and would be willing to allow Hudson-Odoi to leave the club. He's currently injured, obviously, uh, which makes that difficult in the January window. But it doesn't mean to say that as he is under a new contract, they could not attract offers in excess of 35 to 45 million euros for the young England international. Um, the other issue, Duncan, uh, is that Timo Werner and Kai Havertz, who are recruited at great expense of over 100 million euros between them in the, su in the summer window. Um, Werner not particularly struggling, although he's in front of goal and has been switched to a left side attacking midfield position. Havertz, although, however, has been disappointing with regards to his form. Um, and again, uh, we have been informed that both players are struggling just a little bit um, integrating into uh, a new country as well as uh, they are the style of football in the Premier League. Um, Havertz in particular, not finding his way very easily. Um, Frank Lampard, the Chelsea head coach, is doing everything he can to encourage and motivate both players who have a very good, uh, we're told, attitude towards working hard and trying to be their best. However, the change of climate, change of style in football is affecting them both and confidence is not what it might be otherwise had they adapted much more quickly uh, to 
the English game. Duncan's an interesting one with Hudson Adoy. Uh, we know that he wanted certainly a move, and Bayern Munich were very keen to recruit him. But Chelsea decided that they didn't want to lose him for a lesser fee as his contract run down, and they put him on a new contract in excess of £100,000 per week wages. But um, is it any real surprise that um, he's effectively not featured significantly and also that Chelsea may well be willing to part ways? I don't think it's a surprise. I think Hudson Adoy has been unlucky in that he suffered that Achilles injury. Achilles are a very difficult injury to recover from properly this you know medical staff will tell you it's one of the most complicated areas to to repair and heal and get back to full performance level um i think it's probably harder still when you're at a young stage of the career as Hudson Adoy was so although he established himself as a big name because of Bayern's interest and, and Chelsea's response to retain him He's never really had a sustained period in the team where performances have uh, have reached the same level uh, as his valuation went to. On top of that, as you point out, Chelsea have recruited heavily in that area of the field or players who can either prefer to play on the wing or are often used in the wing or can be redirected to the wing like Timo Werner has been recently. Um we talked a long time about this uh, last this time last year, essentially, um, that there was this dispute between Frank Lampard and Chelsea's recruitment department, uh, led by Marino Granovskaya, over where the money should be spent to improve the team. Um, at that point, Chelsea made quite an effort to to sign Jadon Sancho, uh, and Lampard opposed that move feeling that he didn't need an expensive reinforcement in that area of the field. And he didn't want um, that to be his first signing and the, and the, the pressure that would come on to him um, to integrate Sancho properly and, and get the best out of him having a, a, a huge transfer fee attached to the, the, the player's head. Th- those conflicts between Lampard and Granovskaya continued through the summer. You listen back to our previous podcast where we, we detailed... The, the disputes and Lampard's preference to recruit in the centre of defence, um, which was only partially met with Jago Silva. I'd left back as well, Duncan. Yeah, in, in defence in they general. Did spend, they did spend heavily on Chilwell. Yeah, where they did respond to his, his request in that area, but weren't able to provide him with Declan Rice, his, his preferred signing to, to lead the defence went for Thiago Silva, who has um, done well after an initially difficult period, but is no long-term solution, obviously. Um, and then went and and bought Kai Havertz um, pretty much because he was available in much the same way that Granovskaya had looked at Jadon Sancho because he was available, felt uh, he was a super talented player in the game whose value could increase by bringing him to the club and that there was an opportunity to to take the player uh, in the summer when Chelsea had financial resource that other clubs didn't have. Um, and I think now you're getting the, the ramifications of that in that Hudson-Odoi hasn't had as, mu- as much space 
um, to fill in the team because there's so many bodies in that area of the field. And Havertz is experiencing those difficulties that you get um, when you initially move to the Premier League for most players. Um, and Lampard's the one being left to to resolve all of this. And uh, and again, saying, I understand that uh, he'd, he'd be prepared to allow someone like Hudson-Odoi to go to fund um, a transfer for Declan Rice if they can get West Ham United to accept defeat in the January window. Interesting that after two defeats, uh, Chelsea came back to obviously win against West Ham. Um, not entirely convincingly, Um at the beginning of this week, but at the same time, the 3-0 scoreline flatters them, but it moved them up to fifth place in the Premier League. We did have a question from Is Monkey Mount Fuji Monkey at Il Monkey 9. Uh, Duncan made reference to Jaden Sancho there, saying, does Sancho have a chance to go to the club he loved as a kid? Uh, Chelsea, brackets, with Lampard being his idol, and why didn't they go for him last summer? Duncan, you already outlined why uh, Sancho wasn't recruited last summer uh, and also of course Manchester United's pursuit of the player uh, was quite intense and also uh, Lampard had other priorities um, I doubt very much from what I've heard that Chelsea will have any interest in trying to pursue Sancho either in January or next summer as I said um, with the uh, notion that Hudson Odoi is um, up for sale at stroke um, available, it confirms that in those positions. And of course, we haven't even started to talk about Ziyech and Mason Mount, who are both number 10s naturally, as well as uh, Havertz, Pulisic, and Werner, who can play right across the front three attacking midfielders buying the point striker, then it seems to me that Sancho is not going to be a player that Chelsea are interested in. Um, it's our information as well uh, from speaking to our contacts in Germany that Sancho is not necessarily flavour of the month at Borussia Dortmund. His form has been poor uh, in general this season. His attitude is being questioned as well and again, and that people at the club believe that his head has been turned by the fact that he did not uh, get the transfer he wanted uh, to back to the Premier League last summer. And indeed, that there may be an opportunity uh, for him to leave in the January window. However, it's more likely that will be a summer transfer. Um Duncan, Manchester United's long-standing interest in the player has not been dimmed, uh, even by uh, the fact that they have uh, invested in two young right-sided attacking midfielders and uh, that they will go back for Sancho. Duncan, do you think that Sancho would be a natural fit in terms of uh, being a ready-made player to come into the United side, a side who have now become classic counter-attacking in the sense that they transition possession from defence to attack uh, over the course of maybe 10 seconds, sometimes less, as we saw against Leeds United, um, and can be quite devastating in that sense. And, uh, I mean, the play, albeit it turned into something of a training game uh, for them uh, against Leeds, it, it certainly was impressive the way in which they uh, 
bulldozed Legionite who themselves are a very, very well-organized and good counter-attacking side. Yeah, very impressive. I, I, I think, I mean, we've talked in this podcast that Manchester United's position in the table has been um, elevated from what it really should have been and that they've taken points from games where they, they were very fortunate to take points. They're probably six points better than, than they should be. If you look at the games against Brighton, in particular West Bromwich Albion, um, where decisions, refereeing decisions went in their favour and ball didn't go in the net. Record number of uh, times in which the woodwork was hit by Brighton and said that there hasn't been a dominant performance from Manchester United this season. You know, what you'd expect from a team of their calibre, which is every so often they go into a game, they score early, they control the game, they win um, in a straightforward fashion. That was that performance scored straight off the bat. Scott McTominay taking two excellent goals, showing um, his history as a as a striker, a converted striker, um, taking advantage of you know some very bad positional play by Leeds United. Um, I think Solskjaer quite cleverly playing Daniel James in that match, um, who, who he's barely used this season and who was meant to be the answer at right wing when they signed him. But a player Leeds United wanted to sign um, before he went to Manchester United and, and you get that kind of, um, here's your opportunity, lad, take it. So a good bit of management there. Look, you can see why they want Jaden Sancho in the team. Um, you can see why they wanted them in the summer. They, 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 although they signed two teenage right wingers, um, because they felt there was advantage to getting them in the market now, despite a you know, very high spend on Ahmed Giallo, who's just got his uh, European passport, should be arriving in January. Um, they wanted a ready-made finish article player, and they wanted a, a player who. Uh, who can break games um, in a non-counter-attacking sense. And Sancho has that ability to beat a player one-on-one in difficult areas of the field that would add to their game. I mean, ironically, Borussia Dortmund, the criticism of Borussia Dortmund and why Lucien Favre just lost his job was that they are too much of a counter-attacking team. But I think with Sancho, you can see he would fit into a broader um way of playing and provide more options in, in of creating goals in the way that Bruno Fernandes has done and, and has uh, and has made them a much stronger at- attacking force since he arrived last January. Um, they couldn't do that deal for the reasons we um, we detailed at the time. Sancho has not had a good season. Sancho wanted to go to Manchester United. Um, the personal terms were agreed. He was expecting to to go there this summer and um, for various reasons, they did not manage to complete. You have to say the longer it goes on that he has a, a poor season at Dortmund, then the emphasis will be on Dortmund to compromise or, um, or reassess their pricing and say, actually, it's time to let the player go. And Manchester United's position in the transfer market, which we've, we've talked about before in this podcast, is that they, they're still looking in a number of positions, um, left-footed centre-back to, to try and improve and, and uh, compensate for Maguire's weaknesses, back-up right-back, central midfielder, 
Um, we talked last week about the the talks they've had with the Independiente in Ecuador for Moise Casado, um, a story which has been quite widely reported since we broke it on the on the podcast. Um, he would obviously inc- improve their options there, and then that right winger. Um, and their stance has been: we will not necessarily do something in January. We know it's a difficult market to to complete deals in and a difficult market to bring players over and integrate ironically since they they probably done one of the best january signings ever and the quickest integrations and in bruno fernandes who, who essentially became the best player <clears throat> in the team inside a couple of weeks but they they're, they're they're conscious that january is difficult to do these deals and they're saying the only way we will do something is if the deal presents itself at the right price in this window. Otherwise, we wait till the summer um, to act on the, on the positions we think we need to to further round out Solskjaer's team. Following on from that, Duncan, we have a question from Kofi Gyarteng, who says, any chance for Man United to spend in the January transfer window? And how true is it that Mark Overmars could become DOF? Now, obviously, this is a story you reported on the last week's Transfer Window podcast regarding the shortlist for the director of football job. You also said, Duncan, and uh, it was certainly um, our information at the podcast that United were looking to recruit a director of football early in the new year in order to prepare for the summer window. Um, Does that affect what happens in January or... Um, are we looking at a sort of no-brain situation where DOF comes in and says, yeah, Jaden Sancho, he's a good player. <laughs> we, we, we talked about that quite a lot in the last podcast, and that is one of the questions that candidates are asking themselves. If they already have a plan for who they want to recruit, it's just a matter of timing. How much power and control do I get when I move into this job? How serious are they about delegating um, major, most important areas of, of uh, football organisation to the new director of football. A lot of people are asking that question. A lot of people are saying, we've heard this before. We we hear it going into every transfer window that United want to appoint a director of football and it doesn't happen. And then we get on to the next transfer window. And there is real scepticism amongst the, the candidates that uh, that United are, are genuine in doing it this time. And obviously of that matter of, of, of how much control they get. I mean, the, the test is going to be what happens over these next few weeks when they start interviewing candidates and the, the candidates start asking questions uh, to find out what Woodward Ooh. thinks about it, you know, I, I think is, is important here because as you reported, this is being driven by the Glazers. This is not a, an Ed Woodward decision to to bring in a powerful director of football. The Glazers want tighter control and more efficiency in what is the biggest area of spend for any football team and, you know, substantial area of spend for them. We've had Woodward himself talking about how, by his calculations, um, in the period that they've been backing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, they've spent more money net than any other club in European football. So that gives you a sense of the of the kind of money the Glazers want more efficiently spent and believe that a director of football is the answer to doing that. What I wonder, Duncan, is um, 
with United now moving into the top four um, and there being uh, a renewed sense of optimism, stroke, uh, ambition about Manchester United this season, will they support Solskjaer in what he needs for the rest of the season in the January window in the same way that um, Daniel Levy has pledged to Jose Mourinho to support him in their quest to um, win the Premier League title. Well, I th- from what I understand, there's a bit of scepticism from Mourinho's side that Daniel Levy will support him in the window, although Levy has told um, operators in the transfer market that he's ready to spend uh, from what I understand, Mourinho hasn't got the green light yet as to what the budget will be and which of those um, positions that he's identified as being crucial to to broaden the tactical options of the team, which is a box-to-box midfielder who's more capable of knitting the play than, than the options they have at present and a fast left-footed centre-back um, who will allow them to play with a higher line against um, stronger opposition. So he's waiting to hear on that. Um, it's a hard call with Manchester United because, the, again, historically, when they feel that the team is going to get them Champions League football, that that's when the Glazers have uh, turned the tap off and spending and been more careful with what they've done. They've done that several times uh, with managers in the past. <laughs> On the other hand, you have to say that the Manchester United squad at present is a lot better than it's been for a number of years. I mean, if there's still a discussion over the squad that Moy- David Moyes inherited, had it gone past its useful life or did Moyes take the last of its useful life away by the way in which he mishandled the players and, for example, gave Wayne Rooney a a prominence in the dressing room that annoyed a lot of the senior players who weren't happy with the way um, he behaved around the training ground. Um, But let's say since post-Moyes, if you look at all the squads that Manchester United have had, this one has a, a depth of talent in centre midfield in particular, six international class central midfielders with someone like Paul Pogba being used as an impact sub or a a rotation player. A very uh, strong set of attackers given that Mason Greenwood is is now an established senior player coming through from the academy and the best finisher of all of them. Um, You have Marcus Rashford playing with great confidence and credit to Solskjaer for uh, sorting his play out and getting him to settle on the left wing position and uh, and and working him into a team structure there and then you have Edinson Cavani as a as a backup essentially but giving them the opportunity to play aerial balls um, a guy who's comfortable with his back to goal very intelligent operator in the box plus Anthony Martial's obvious talents they're better at fullback than they used to be although they're question marks over Wan-Bissaka from a positional point of view but one-on-one tackling fantastic Alex Telles has improved their, considerably their options at left back the, the main weak area of the squad is the centre back um, and 
that centre back combination is down to them giving the manager who you wanted when they spent a world record fee on the centre back. So the squad's pretty good. Um, and from that perspective, the Glazers have an argument to say, well, we've given you quite a lot already. Um, how much more do you need? And, and obviously they were prepared to do Sancho in the summer. Um, when Sancho fell through, they went for Usman Dembele, which would not have been a cheap deal and uh, weren't able to get that over the line because they left it till deadline day to get into proper final negotiations with Barcelona. So they, they have showed their willingness in the summer to spend again and at least from a point of view of preparing for transfers, they're talking about doing four more um, signings uh, in in key areas of the team, um, you know, one of them being backup right back. So that, that they're talking as though they want to round the squad out and give Solskjaer every opportunity um, to secure that Champions League place and do what he's supposed to do, which is get them competitive for the Premier League again. They have. I think, um, and some of our listeners, I don't know if you heard earlier, all of you, um, in terms of it may have slipped under your radar or you didn't quite notice, but Duncan did actually say the words good management in reference to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I hope you all picked up on that because many of you pick on when Duncan says negative things about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, I do think that United look like a team who are quite easy on the eye. I quite enjoy watching them play when they're in the full flow um, on that counter-attack. They seem to me to be a team who uh, can basically, if they get the opportunity, uh, and Leeds certainly didn't defend well against them, but let's not take anything away from United. They were pretty devastating in attack uh, in that match. Um, are they genuine title contenders, Duncan? Uh, given they're now in third place and, uh, you know, they are chasing down Liverpool and Leicester above them? I Look, you, what you to do this analysis, you've got to look at the way they've played over the course of the season. And certainly, as I've already said, their points are higher than they should be uh, in terms of performances. So... And they're still, you know, a distance behind a Liverpool team that have not had their own problems to seek. So that would suggest that they're not genuine title contenders unless what they did against Leeds United is a genuine change and they have found um, the consistency that even Solskjaer says has been lacking in the team. Now, it's not too hard to examine the way they've been playing and and spot problems, fundamental problems in, for example, their, their defending of set pieces. Um, and we know that they went out of the Champions League because of errors made, pretty basic errors made by the manager. Now, you don't expect that to change on Solskjaer's part. Um, that's, I think, a mark of, of where he is as a coach, he will make errors because he's not an elite level coach. He's dealing with very strong squad of players now, so he'll get um, more better results than he's got in other stages of his career. You would have to expect Liverpool to drop off a long way to make 
that Manchester United team genuine title contenders this season and for them to suddenly find a pattern of play in a full range of games um, which has been different to what they've done so far this season and different to what they did in, in the Champions League to get themselves eliminated at the group stage. I, th I think it's too early for them um, and I think in the same way that Tottenham are looking at this season as an opportunity in the Premier League because Manchester City have had a very bad start, Arsenal are miles off the pace, Chelsea are still finding their feet with a lot of changes to the squad. This should be seen as the opportunity to win the Premier League title because you won't, you shouldn't expect Manchester City to be so far off it again next season. Um, but for me, it doesn't look like they are. They're in that that from the way they've they've played and the way they've been organised across the season. Um, they don't look like a team who will get enough points over the course of the season to challenge for the title. Well, since losing to Liverpool um, in a crucial match, the top of the table clash, the most significant com uh, competitive game of the season so far in the English Premier League, Spurs um, have dropped off the pace. We've got a question here from Antonis Kiyas, uh, who asks, how long do you think it will take before Mourinho loses another dressing room? Is it unreasonable to assume that his ambitions, uh, ambitious, I should say, attacking players will get tired of his negative football? What do you think about his comments post-matches when he is clearly being dominated? Duncan, um, I think it would be um, quite a feat to lose a whole dressing room. Um <laughs> for for any manager, uh, if, unless it fell out of his pocket as he was running for a bus. But um, I think it's a reasonable question um, from Antonis with regards to um, the attitude and mentality of Spurs. Uh, I don't think personally the football is negative and uh, I saw some uh, commentators say over the weekend that Spurs are... Uh, falling away because of being found out with regards to this negativity in the way they play and that other managers um, have figured them out with regards to the counter-attacking style and everything else. However, I, football is played in many ways, results are achieved in many ways in football. Uh, I really don't think uh, that um, what Mourinho's doing is negative, nor do I believe that it's not effective. Uh, and every manager has a philosophy that he feels will win games. However, uh, the question is, will he lose his dressing room because he's got players in there who are more naturally creative than they are to defend? If they don't get results, then you'll, you'll get players who will complain about the style of play. That happens at every club. Um, those complaints will be magnified because there's an, an easy story about Jose Mourinho, which is the one you've been hearing that they're, they're, they are playing with too much negativity, too much caution, and they've um, thrown away an opportunity at the at the top top of the Premier League because of that. It's you know if you look at the last six games, they go Manchester City, Chelsea, Arsenal don't concede a goal, win two of them, um, get themselves to the top of the table. It all looks great. Then they drop um, 
two points against Crystal Palace when they had the game under their control. Um, they lose to Liverpool when actually the tactical plan, I think, I think most um, reasoned observers will say that Mourinho's tactical plan in that game was correct. It created the better chances in the match, and and uh, you know to the extent where you can use optic statistics on quality of chances, that's clearly shown um, that Tottenham ended up with four of what they call big chances in that game. Um, and Liverpool had none, um, so so strategically it was the correct solution, but it didn't come off because, you know, as, as we said, Jordan Henderson was streetwise at the end, took Eric Dyer out of a marking position and um, and Liverpool score from the, the space created at, at the set piece when there's there's not time for Tottenham to recover. And then they have a, a bad performance against Leicester um, and lose uh, to a team with a, you know, generated or, or put into a difficult position by a, a, a silly defensive error. So they, they, they're coming off a very tough run of fixtures. They played more games than any team in the Premier League because of the, the way their Europa League schedule started and that period in which they were playing three, four games um, in very quick succession early on in the season. There is, I think, an issue in that Mourinho, as is often the case with him, when he comes into a club, he doesn't trust all of the players. So if you look at the lineups he's used in these matches, he's been pretty consistent in the players he's using, which will contribute to tiredness and you could say can contribute to that um, the poor week they've had. Um, that again can be an issue in the dressing room if you're, you know, if you don't trust certain players and and Davinson Sanchez is an, an obvious example here. Davinson Sanchez lost his place because of the West Ham United game where they were 3 0 up and, and uh, I managed to throw three goals away and, and end up with a draw. Um, Mourinho thinks he's error prone, but he's the quickest player in central defence. He, he, he then switches to Alderweireld and Eric Dyer as a partnership and and then has to play with a lower block against City, Chelsea and Arsenal because he's using two slower defenders there. So there, there are issues and it can swing against them. And what you know for sure is that people will be looking for him to fail in in a manner that um, that doesn't happen with other managers to this, the same extent. So that can magnify... Um, problems that develop in the dressing room. I think Tottenham supporters have been very happy with results that got them to the top of the table, but there is an element of the Tottenham support, which understandably was sceptical about Mourinho coming in, given his history uh, in the Premier League and given the style of play that's associated with them. So they will um, complain <clears throat> probably early um, too. So Will it work for him? It depends. Um, it depends on on recruitment. It depends on um, what happens in individual matches. Uh, the the flow of a season. As Mourinho often say, uh, says himself, it comes down to small details in a lot of games. And um, if the small details go in, in the wrong way, and some of them being caused by his own decisions, and some just just by um, what happens in the field of play 
player errors such as the one Serge Aurier made at uh, at the weekend um, could end up with the dressing room or elements of the dressing room saying we don't like this and Daniel Levy saying I, actually I, I made a mistake in this appointment I'm going to switch to someone else in fairness he was up against the tactical genius that is Brendan Rodgers so <laughs> um, we can't really blame Josie for losing that one um, you said on Friday Duncan in the podcast that you believed um, Liverpool would win the league that uh, Jurgen Klopp obviously was listening because he sent his team out to win uh, at Crystal Palace. And as I saw the seventh goal go in, I immediately thought of what you said um, <laughs> and that Liverpool, in your eyes, were the champions-elect, even though um, they're nowhere near as far ahead at this point uh, this year as they were last year. Um you stand by that, obviously, four points ahead, going into this crucial holiday period, fixture congestion, etc. Look, as I said last week, there and they've they've weathered a very difficult period with the loss of some key individuals and got themselves back on the top of the table, winning that pivotal game against Tottenham at home. Which I think that is a from a psychological point of view an important one that psychology can be overplayed in football but you you can you could see from the way the players were speaking the way the manager was speaking the importance of that match to them um so they are in position now in a in a you know in a, in a strange league where everyone is dropping points uh they've got yes the difficult january period to get through but in fabinho they have uh they found probably a better substitute than anyone they could they could buy in the market for for Virgil Van Dijk. I mean, like the quality of his play in multiple positions, his tactical intelligence. I think his general intelligence as a footballer. I was speaking to someone who who's known Fabinho since very early in his career. In fact, was was partially responsible for bringing him from Brazilian football to Europe. And he said he's one of the most intelligent individuals he's ever worked with in the game. And talked about how he went to when he moved to Spain with Real Madrid. He, within a month, he was speaking good Spanish, then moved to France with Monaco, same story, a month, and, he, and his Spanish was good, and, and to England, and again, very rapidly rapidly comfortable with the language, which he you know, basically attributes to, to his high IQ in all areas, not just football areas. Um, so they are in, in position now uh, to all that, uh, title and, and and take it two years running. Um, do you see anyone overhauling them? Having watched the ruthlessness with which they um, hammered Crystal Palace at the weekend, they didn't relent at any point. Um, they simply just kept going for more goals. Uh, you can see the way in which uh, even late in the second half, not just the attacking force, but defending as well. And I, I don't think I've been more impressed by any team than I have been by Liverpool um, this season. Um, I'm not sure the injury crisis outside of Van Dijk has been as bad as Jurgen Klopp would have liked to make out. And I kind of 
kind of side with Jose Mourinho on that one. You know, they've got a majority of their best players and their first team choices available. Um, and that's proven to be in, uh, very significant um, with regards to their results. I think what has been different this season to last is that they have started the season um, quite inconsistently, but they've found for now at a time when the best teams rise to the top and then tend to stay at the top. So yes, Duncan, I would agree with you with regards to um, their title challenge. Um, I'm not saying that it's it's impossible uh, that another team will win the Premier League this year because Liverpool um, certainly will be stretched with regards to uh, their fixture commitments in Champions League as well. But uh, they certainly are the most impressive team in England at this moment in time. And they have goal scorers all over the pitch, as I think we saw at Palace, uh, Mina Mino, um, Firmino's come back into form in terms of his goal scoring, um, not just uh, against Palace, but obviously the header against Spurs, uh, which won the game in the last minute of normal time, which was sensational. Um, and also they have a momentum and confidence about them now, which makes them look like the Liverpool of last season. Uh, which they lacked at the start of this particular campaign. So, yes, I think um, they're in the box seat and um, they will certainly be very difficult to dislodge from their perch, as Fergie might say. This uh, will be the only podcast of this week for the transfer window because we have the holiday period coming up and I think you'll understand that we're not going to be recording on Christmas Day and I hope uh, all of you uh, will have empathy with us for that reason and that you will be able to last until next Tuesday when we record the next episode of the transfer window. Um, However, we are going to finish off on a seasonal note uh, instead of humor and villain, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, um, cite our Santa of the last calendar year and our Grinch. And I'm going to leave it to Duncan to do the nice thing um, and cite the Santa, uh, Santa Claus of 2020. Just before I do that, I'll put a last bit of, of news into this podcast and that's on an update on where Marcus Rojo is, um, one of the players at Manchester United desperately trying to get off their books because of his uh, £8 million a year wage, which uh, they aren't getting much value for given that he last played for the team in November 2019. We Does that make you- Marcus Santa Claus? Because <laughs> he's got £8 million a year. <laughs> Well, he wants to hang on to his eight million a year because we, we told you previously that he had approaches from Sheffield United um, and Reading. Um, Newcastle United have also made an inquiry. I'm told there is now interest from Spain, uh, the United Arab Emirates and the United States. So Major League Soccer would like to bring him across. However, the problem for Manchester United is that none of those offers match his current salary. Again, not particularly surprising that they don't. And what I am being told is that Rojo does not want to lose a euro of the money he has owned by Manchester United and is made, has made it clear if the club don't make up the difference in salary um, to allow him 
to go elsewhere, then he's going to stay until the end of his contract. So, so I think he's being more of a more of a Christmas Grinch here, or, or testing the the Santa Claus um, um, or, or Marcus Scrooge. Yes, Ten- <laughs> testing the generosity of the Glazers. I think you could say <laughs> the generosity of the Glazers. There's a sense I never thought I'd hear. <laughs> um, Santa of the of of the year of the of the transfer window podcast year. I think we shall give it to Lionel Messi, um, who scored his uh, 643rd goal for Barcelona this week, um, matching matching Pele's record for an individual club. But I think tellingly, leaving them still fifth in the table and, and eight points behind leaders Atletico, which I think gives you a sense of where Barcelona are at the club at the moment. He talked about how um, he'd had a very bad time in the summer and he dragged everything into the start of the season for a bit, but he's feeling fine now. But um, let's see Messi in a white beard. Um, he can add, add that to his, uh, his, his gradually developing hipster look for the for the rest of the year. I've always been fascinated by the fact he's got a red beard when he grows a beard. And uh, and but dark hair. He's, he, there might be a bit of Scottish in him somewhere. He's saying we missed out. He should be playing Leo, for Leo McMessy. He should be playing for Scotland. <laughs> well, you know, listen, these are the things that dreams are made of, as Shakespeare might say, at this time of the year. Um, very good. Um, my uh, Grinch of 2020, or the, certainly the season of 2020, you'll not be surprised to hear is the villain assistant referee who um, has made things very difficult for everyone in football by confusing us uh, in terms of not uh, abiding by its own rules um, of clear and obvious error and also um, making it um, very difficult for us to understand just why decisions are made uh, in certain circumstances uh, by the VAR and also, of course, overriding the uh, on-field referee, um, which thankfully seems to have come to a little bit uh, of a compromise with the referees now being allowed to um, look at the on-field monitor. So let's hope that in 2021, VAR will not be mentioned as much on this podcast or indeed anywhere else. Duncan, I would think you'd probably agree on the VAR, would you? I think one of our listeners asked a question about that one, uh, Cambrian, one of our regulars. And uh, yes, I think uh, it is a problem that has not gone away. It's a problem, sadly, which I don't think is going to go away. And I think if you've watched, if you you were to watch a game now and compare it to pre-VAR refereeing, what you see are the officials deferring so many decisions and and not being prepared to make decisions on the field in the hope or the expectation that that VAR will correct them or 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 save them or rescue them or um they they're operating in a different way from where they used to and as we've said many many times on this podcast it's not for the better of football not for the better of football there you go. I think that's a very fitting way to describe um, VAR and where we are with regards to its use in the game. Um, 
that's it for this week from the podcast. Um, as I said, we will not be back later in the week because of the holiday period. However, we'll be back next week. If you liked what you have heard, then please leave a five-star review on iTunes and that way we can expand the Transfer Window community. You can subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Please turn on all your notifications and you will be first to hear when the next podcast is indeed published. Please join the discussion. Um, this has been your questions answered today and we like of course, as always, to engage with you, not just on the podcast, but we do so on our social media platforms. We are at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Individually, Duncan is at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. We wish you all a very, very happy holiday period. Uh, we hope that you stay safe and be well. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>